On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. If you remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. If you will follow along as I read God's Word, beginning now, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we are back again this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, where we've been looking at Paul's hymn of praise and thanksgiving, which runs from verse 3 through verse 14. And you'll remember that in verse 3, Paul began by declaring that God is to be blessed, he is to be praised, because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then in verse 4, Paul began to explain why God is so worthy to be praised by spelling out for us exactly how he has blessed us. First of all, in verses 4 to 6, Paul tells us of the spiritual blessings we received in eternity past. We were chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ. And and all of this, Paul said, is, is according to the purpose of his will, God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us or graced us with in the beloved, that is, in Christ. And we learned in those verses that God's ultimate purpose for us as sons is to be holy and blameless before him. But as we said, that's, that's a big problem, because we're still on earth, we're still fallible and still sinful, and our sin makes us guilty before God, and the Bible declares that God holds us responsible for our sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, and so the question is, how can we ever be brought to the place of being holy and blameless before him? Because before we can ever arrive at the predestined position which God has purposed for us, something has to be done about the problem of our sin and our sins. And something was done. And this is what Paul tells us about next. In verses 7 to 10, Paul turns now from the work of the Father in eternity past to the work of God the Son in the course of history. And building on what what has already been said about the blessings we have in Christ, Paul now overflows with praise to God for his great work of redemption through Christ in verses 7 to 8 and for God's plan to sum up all things in Christ in verses 9 and 10. And last time we only got as far as verse 7 where Paul gives the second of four main reasons why God is worthy of the praises of his people. And that is because he has redeemed us. Let's look back at verse 7 just for a, a brief review. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
And Paul's statement in verse 7 is the very heart of the gospel. He says, God has blessed us in the beloved, and, and it is in him, in Christ, that we have redemption. Mankind is in bondage as the result of sin. Man is under sin, under the power of sin, a slave to sin, and we are totally unable to escape on our own. And so the Lord Jesus came into the world to do something for us, to to act on our behalf. He redeemed us. He paid the price for our release from sin and guilt and condemnation. Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for many. And so the cost of our redemption was the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ. His death was the substitute for our death. In other words, he died the death that we deserved. He he died in our place. Christ loved us and, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And not only has the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us, verse 7 tells us he has forgiven all our trespasses. You know, all our sin, past, present, and future, are forgiven. All of them. Every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. And God has not only forgiven our sin, but as the psalmist said, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And our sins in Christ are forgiven absolutely, finally, and completely. They're they're never to be seen again. God has forgiven us all our trespasses. And what is it that makes all of this possible? What is it that gives us this redemption by ransom, this forgiveness of sins that we enjoy? Well, we pick up this morning with the answer to those questions at the end of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this, Paul tells us, if you look at verse 7, this is according to the riches of his grace. First part of verse 8, which he lavished upon us. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Paul used the term grace early in verse 6 where he spoke of the the praise of the glory of his grace, but but here he speaks of the riches of his grace or the riches of God's grace. And the words rich and riches are some of Paul's favorite words. And he uses these words in other letters to explain the infinite and, and priceless nature of God's character and actions toward people. But here in Ephesians, he refers to God's riches six times. First here in in verse 7, speaking of the riches of his grace. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he prays believers know what what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, verse 4, he speaks of God being rich in mercy. In chapter 2, verse 7, he speaks of the immeasurable riches of his grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 16, the riches of his glory. And this idea of the riches of Christ, the the riches of His grace, just absolutely filled the mind and heart of the Apostle Paul. He He was overwhelmed by the grace of God. 
And he never ceased to wonder that he who had been a persecutor and a blasphemer, a a self-satisfied, proud Pharisee, smug and and boasting in his self-righteousness, that he of all men was forgiven and beyond that called to be an apostle and a preacher of the gospel, sent out as Christ's ambassador to the Gentiles that he of all men was the recipient of the grace of God, was an amazing fact. And as Paul looked at himself, he never ceased to be amazed. And that's why he proclaimed, but by the grace of God, I am what I am in 1 Corinthians 15. The grace that made him a preacher drove him across continents and across seas. It, It made him preach day and night with tears and pleading. I mean, this was the thing that compelled him and made him say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I mean, he was driven by the thought of these riches of God's grace. And Paul's greatest desire in life was that everyone might experience the riches of God's grace. And here Paul wants us to know that our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins are based on the riches of God's amazing, infinite grace. The word riches literally describes material prosperity, riches or wealth. It refers to an abundance of material resources and possessions exceeding the norm of a particular society. And used figuratively, as it is in in this verse, it describes a spiritual abundance or prosperity, specifically of God's grace. And of course, the word grace, while occasionally in Scripture having the meaning of loveliness in most of Paul's writings, it has the particular sense of a a free gift. God's undeserved, unmerited favor, or more informally, getting what we do not deserve. And of course, the truth is that we don't deserve anything from God except condemnation and wrath. But grace is God choosing to bless us rather than curse us as our sin deserves. It is his benevolence to the undeserving. Grace is God giving the greatest treasure to the least deserving, which is every one of us. And in this verse, grace is abundant deliverance provided because of payment of the ransom and is poured out on the undeserving, those who in fact deserve the exact opposite. And it reflects our Father's abundant yet undeserved love and goodness. And God's grace results in our redemption and forgiveness with with all the benefits. And so what Paul is saying is that our redemption and the forgiveness of our sin is according to the wealth or the the superabundance of God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved love and favor. And I want you to notice something. I want you to take note of the fact that Paul says our redemption and forgiveness is according to. Not out of, but according to the riches of his grace. You say, well, is that significant? Yes, it most certainly is. It is very, very significant, and here's why. The word according means not out of his riches, but proportionate to God's riches. Let me illustrate it. If I go to a multimillionaire and ask him to contribute to a worthy ministry and he gives me $100, 
or $1,000, and he has given out of his riches. A lot of people who are relatively poor give that much. But if he gives 500000 or a million dollars, then he has given according to his riches. The first is a minuscule portion of his great wealth, while the second is in proportion to his great wealth. When it comes to God, he gives according to the riches of his grace, not stingily, not miserly, but proportionately. When God gives according to the riches of his grace, he gives from his unlimited treasure house. And and Charles Hodge writes, it is the overwhelming abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. You see, loved ones, as believers, spiritually speaking, we are wealthy beyond measure. Because God gives not out of the riches of his grace, but according to the riches of his grace, which Paul says in verse 8, he lavished upon us. So here Paul elaborates on the extent of God's grace. Not only is his grace given to us, it is lavished upon us. He lavished it upon us. And the word lavish means to superabound. To be an affluence, to be an abundance with the implication of being considerably more than what would be expected. And, and it carries the idea of exceeding the requirements or of overflowing or, or overdoing. It means to exceed, to be over and above a certain number or measure. It means to have or to be more than enough, to be extremely rich or abundant, to, to bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities. You know, so when you lavish something upon someone, you, you heap it up more and more and more, and the idea is just to overflow like a river out of its banks. And so you realize what this means. It means that our Heavenly Father has caused His grace to superabound to undeserving sinners in superabundance. That's amazing grace. And Paul used this same Greek word with with a similar meaning in Romans 5.15 where he said, But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The term translated riches in verse 7 and the verb lavished in verse 8 speak of the incalculable abundance and extravagance of God's grace toward sinners. I don't even think we, first of all, think about this very much or even understand what it means or appreciate what it means. And the effect of Adam's sin on mankind was just devastating and justifiably brought God's wrath and judgment into the world just as God had promised. But in uh, dramatic contrast, the grace of God manifested through Jesus Christ had an even greater impact on mankind, not being given in just a token amount, but in superabundance. And as a result, undeserved salvation became available to all people everywhere. 
On Calvary, Jesus demonstrated that God's love and grace is greater than all human sin, and no one and, and nothing is beyond the reach of his grace. And so what we're talking about here is a supersized, superabundant grace, which is more than enough to save and keep every sinner who comes to God in Christ Jesus saved and saved today and throughout eternity. Now that's really good news. I mean, how great is our Father's love for us? I mean, how, how amazing is His grace? But I'm afraid so many in the church have, have lost the amazement of His grace. But I want you to think of all of the riches of His grace. He set His love on us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. He predestined us for adoption as sons that we might be holy and blameless before him. The riches of God's grace are seen in the price that was paid for our redemption. We were redeemed by the blood, the very life of the Son of God. He saved us and forgave all of our sins, past, present, and future. I mean, think of it. Free forgiveness. Forgiveness without any payment whatsoever. He demands nothing. Salvation is without money and without price. Not a cent. Nothing is demanded as payment and nothing will be received as payment. It is all by the riches of His grace. He justifies us freely, fully. It is full forgiveness. And more than that, we're reconciled to God. There's nothing now between us and God because Christ has died for us and we are now in Christ. And as a result, we have access and fellowship with God. In in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I mean, heaven means being in the presence of God and enjoying Him without hindrance or, or restraint. But Paul reminds us here that according to the riches of God's grace, we are given a a foretaste of that blessing now in this world. We have access to the Father by Christ through the Spirit. And then just consider the gift of the Holy Spirit and our being sealed by the Spirit of God. Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 1, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And then in chapter 1, verse 19, he prayed that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. I mean, God doesn't save us and and forgive us and then leave us to ourselves to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, he has given us the gift of the Spirit. And by the Spirit, Christ dwells in us and he is able to do for us far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. In chapter 3, Paul writes about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. And he goes on to say something even more astounding. We're to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Christ in our hearts by faith and, and the fullness of God, all of this is offered to us according to the riches of His grace. And then think about the armor which Paul speaks about in chapter 6. I mean, everything necessary to enable us to stand in the evil day against the schemes of Satan is provided for us. I mean, every part of us is covered completely. 
And God's grace is also manifest as his power that enables, empowers, and sustains us in our Christian life, enables our efforts, keeps us from falling, secures our progress in holiness, and works all things in our lives together for our good. And we've said absolutely nothing about the riches of God's grace and his care and provision for us materially and physically. I mean, think of God's grace that is available to you today. You can rest assured that it will be more than sufficient to meet your every need. I mean, these are some of the riches of God's grace with, with reference to our life in this world. And then think of the hope to which he has called us, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. An inheritance, Peter said, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are in Christ. It is all prepared, and it is all a part of the riches of His grace. And one day we'll see Him as He is. We will be with Him. We'll reign with Him. We'll enjoy Him. We'll be like Him. I mean, when we turn to God in repentance and faith, we don't do so as, as servants because we are adopted sons. And we are to enjoy all that our Father's heart and love have prepared for us. I mean, that's what's offered to us in Christ Jesus according to the riches of God's grace. One commentator said, The riches of His grace are as large and as great and as profound as God Himself. For when God prepared our salvation, He gave Himself and His Son. So the riches of God's grace are really God Himself. He has treasured up all his treasures of wisdom and of grace in the Son. All is in Christ. The measure of the riches of God's grace is the measure of the person of God. So we can say in our puny, inadequate language that the riches of God's grace are unfathomable. I mean, we, we, we must ask ourselves, are we amazed by the riches of God's grace? I mean, do we appreciate these riches? As one man said, it's because so many of us do not appreciate the riches of His grace that we are constantly grumbling and complaining. It explains also why many are miserable and look miserable and therefore never attract a soul to Christ. You see, to know the riches of God's grace and to appreciate the riches of God's grace will inevitably lead us, as it did in Paul, to worship and praise God. And it will, it will make us rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let me ask you, I mean, do we, do we individually know the riches of God's grace? Have we experienced them? Are we even aware of them? You know, what is sad is that it is possible that a Christian who's been poorly taught might live their entire life without being aware of what Paul is teaching here. God isn't stingy or skimpy or miserly when it comes to his grace. He lavishes his grace upon us. And we need to meditate on what Paul is describing here. 
we need to think long and hard and, and deeply about these things. And if we grasp what Paul is describing here, you know, if, if we grasp the nature of the love God has demonstrated on the cross, we'll realize that it's not a reluctant, but a lavish love and a lavish grace. And the riches of God's grace make us spiritually rich beyond measure. Beyond measure. And so because our Heavenly Father has abundantly overdone Himself uh, for us who deserve nothing from Him, we should determine to overdo ourselves as if that were even possible in our service to Him. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. That's that word translated lavished here. Always abounding in what, Paul? In the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me ask you something. Do you live in a growing sense of the superabundant love and grace of God? Do you? He has blessed us. He has chosen us in love. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. He has redeemed us and all, forgiven us. And, and all of this, Paul says, is according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. One man said, How suspicious of God many Christians seem to be. We do not trust Him. We doubt His goodness. We taste little of the sweetness of His grace. Here He said, it's what will dissolve paralyzing fears, cringing doubt, suspicious unbelief. The riches of his grace lavished upon us. And loved ones, we, we already have these riches in Christ. They're already ours in Christ. But so many Christians live as spiritual paupers as if they are totally unaware of the riches the superabundant riches of, of God's grace. So let me ask you something this morning, dear child of God. Are, are you aware of all of the riches of His grace? Do you know that your loving Father in heaven has lavished His grace upon you? As John said, it's just grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, abundant grace, just a never-ending, non-diminishing supply of grace upon grace upon grace. I mean, grace keeps flowing over and over. There's no limit to the supply of grace that God has given to His children and placed at their disposal in Christ. There, there is a limitless supply or reservoir of grace with a limitless overflow. It's, it's grace upon grace. And this, this overflowing fountain of grace is just an incredible gift. 
And grace is not only the beginning principle of the Christian life, it is the continuing principle of the Christian life. Grace covers the entire Christian experience. We not only get into relationship with God by grace, we live out that relationship day by day by grace. Grace that enables and empowers us to live and to minister and fulfill our calling through gifts God gives. And are you living like a spiritual pauper? feeding on the, and living for the temporal things of this life? Or are you daily drawing upon the riches of His grace? The riches of God's grace makes us spiritually rich beyond measure. And, and Paul never ever grew tired of magnifying the grace of God and the God of grace. And he wants us never to forget for a moment that, that we are and always will be debtors to mercy and grace. And God has lavished grace upon us. We're the, the recipients of his extravagant goodness and kindness. And you know the mark of a man or woman who, who is captivated by the riches of God's grace? The mark of a man or woman captivated by the riches of God's grace is a humble heart and a heart that is filled with worship. A life that is filled with worship. A life that is lived in, in enjoying God and the things of God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which he lavished upon us, and then Paul says, in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. The words wisdom and insight may be taken in, in one of two ways. Number one, some apply these words to God. They say these words describe Christ's redeeming work as an example of God's wisdom and insight. And if that's the case, Paul is commending the, the wisdom and insight of our God as they are displayed in our redemption. Number two, others apply these words to believers in the sense that they're saying that God expresses, also expresses his grace, the riches of his grace, by giving to us wisdom and insight. So how do we decide between these two translation possibilities? Well, the epistle to the Colossians, which is very closely related to Ephesians, and in a, in a parallel passage there in Colossians 1.9, we see clearly that Paul desired for the Colossian believers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which is a closely related phrase to this one in Ephesians 1.8. And so it seems then what Paul is saying is that the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished upon us in redemption, not only results in the forgiveness of sin, but also in being given wisdom and insight. And the word translated wisdom emphasizes comprehending and understanding spiritual truths. Things such as life and death, God and man, righteousness and sin, heaven and hell, eternity and time. And Paul uh, is speaking of wisdom concerning the things of God. The word translated insight, on the other hand, emphasizes the practical understanding and application of spiritual truth to the needs, problems, and principles of everyday living. 
And so it's the, the practical use of spiritual wisdom in dealing with actual situations which results in right action in daily life. And so Paul's point is simply that God's lavish grace not only provides redemption and forgiveness, but also the necessary wisdom and spiritual insight to understand and live in light of what he has done for us in Christ. He graciously, generously gives us the wherewithal both to understand his word and to know how to apply it and to obey it. And this is what happens when when Christ redeems us and makes us his own. In the Gospels, you know, we see Jesus walking with and instructing disciples. But now he does the same for us by his Spirit through the Bible. In Romans 12, 2-3, Paul writes of the renewing of the mind that comes about through God's transforming word. And as a result of this, Paul says, Christians are able to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the freedom that Jesus intends for us when he redeems us from sin. And it is this that we are to seek by studying and applying the truths of God's word. God lavished the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now if you'll notice verse 9. Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And so here in verse 9, Paul explains the particular way in which God's grace was lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, namely, by making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. And this is the first of seven times Paul uses the word mystery in the letter to the Ephesians. And the word mystery, as Paul uses it, does not refer to to things mystical or mysterious. It does not refer to secret things, you know, secret teachings, rites, or ceremonies revealed only to some elite group or cult which claim to have more divine enlightenment. Now, the word mystery used in the New Testament refers to truth which was previously unrevealed, or not fully revealed in the Old Testament, but now revealed for the first time to the saints in the New Testament. And there were many truths hidden and later revealed by God in the New Testament that are called mysteries. Such truth includes the mystery of the incarnate God in Colossians 2, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the the interim program of God between Christ's first and second coming in Matthew 13. The mystery of the indwelling of Christ is the hope of glory, Colossians 1 and and 2. The mystery of godliness is the process by which man becomes Christ-like in character in 1 Timothy 3. The mystery of the blindness of Israel and God's purpose with Israel's blindness in Romans 11. The mystery of lawlessness, the the continuation and, and gradual buildup of the state of lawlessness that will culminate in the man of lawlessness there in 2 Thessalonians. The mystery of the rapture, the the departure of the church at the end of this age, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. And then there's the mystery of Babylon in in Revelations chapter 17. Here in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the mystery of his will, God's will here in verse 9. In chapter 3, verse 9, he speaks of bringing to light the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. 
In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul speaks of how the mystery was made known to him by revelation. Well, what is this mystery? Well, in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 32, he says the mystery refers to Christ and his church. In chapter 6, verse 19, he speaks of the mystery of the gospel. So this mystery uh, refers to, to Christ, the, the gospel, and, and the church. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so one aspect of the mystery of, of Christ and his church and the gospel long hidden, but now revealed through Paul, is the gospel coming to the Gentiles. That Gentiles and Jews are no longer two, but rather one new man, equal in every way in Christ, sharers together of the new life in Christ as fellow citizens, fellow heirs, and fellow members of the same spiritual body. And so when Paul speaks about the mystery of God's will in verse 9, he is speaking about uh, the, 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 uh, God's plan of redemption, his, his plan of salvation made known by God's revelation through the prophets and apostles and brought to full expression in God's timing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? Well, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so Paul says, look, God gave me the message of the unfathomable riches of Christ so that they could be brought to light so that in the church and then through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be be known. So it's a very simple idea. God gave a revelation to Paul. Paul passed that revelation on, and it was received by those who have been given the capacity to understand it. Believers. Because a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, Paul said to the Corinthians. But the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in redemption, not only results in forgiveness, but also in us being given wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will or the mystery of the salvation story. And if we think about this, we'll realize that what, what exciting news Paul is bringing here. He is saying that God's will, which men and women can never know through their own efforts, is revealed in the gospel. The mind of God is revealed through the person and work of Christ. And we have been given wisdom and insight as a result of the riches of his grace to be able to grasp and believe the full story of the gospel and all that has been revealed from heaven through Holy Scripture. So Paul says, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. It is the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And the word translated purpose means good pleasure. It's the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 5. And Jesus used this word in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, when he said, in that same hour, where we read, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or for this, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And it refers to the fact that God does what he does simply because it pleases him to do so. God is making known to us the mystery of his will, his plan of, of redemption, because it brings him pleasure. Because he delights to show mercy. And there is no work or merit that is the condition of his doing this. He delights to show mercy to those who are undeserving. Why? Well, what in us makes us worthy in his sight to receive this revelation? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. God's will is sovereign. He doesn't determine his plan based upon anything outside of himself, and that includes anything in us. But as the hymn writer reminds us, it pleased God to wound the sacred head of Christ for such a worm as I. And the mystery of the ages has been revealed to us without any good in us to merit it. And our privilege is all from God's mercy and the riches of His grace. We just understand very little of the riches of His grace. Or at least, we sure live like it. God intended for us to understand His saving purposes. And therefore, he lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. His plan of salvation. And why did he do it? Simply because it pleased him to do so. Because he delights in mercy. And furthermore, God's purpose is and always has been focused on his son, Jesus Christ. As Paul says in the verse, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. We worship God through Christ, not merely because Jesus helps us or because we can relate to him, but because God's eternal purpose is centered on Christ and manifested through Christ. And what is that purpose? Paul says in verse 10, You'll notice a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Obviously, verse 10 is taking us into the future. The mystery of God's will is a salvation story that's still going on. And Paul wants us to know the end because history is going somewhere. History has a destination, a purpose, and a climax, or as Paul puts it, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. In other words, to bring all things together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the key phrase in verse 10 is the fullness of time. The only other time this phrase is used in the New Testament is in Galatians chapter 4 in reference to the Incarnation. And we read in Galatians 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Paul says that God sent his son when the fullness of time had come or when the time had fully come or at just the right moment. I mean, God sending his son to this earth when he did was not an accident. It was not a coincidental convergence of, of all these different events and movements. The timing was intentional in every way. Jesus came at the exact point in time in human history that God had not only predetermined, but also had providentially prepared the world for, both spiritually and logistically. I mean, God in his sovereignty designed and directed all of history for this moment in time. It was the culmination of the plan devised in the eternal counsel of God before the creation of the world. Christ came in the fullness of time at just the right time, the time that God had ordained. And loved ones, in the same way, God has another appointment for Christ's return. And that won't be by accident either. God in his sovereign design has ordained a time, a day when Jesus will come back. And Paul says here in Ephesians 1.10, God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God has revealed to the church through Christ the ultimate goal of creation. The destiny of creation is not an open-ended matter of chance because God has determined from the foundation of the world how the universe is going to end up. And it's not simply that he has a goal or a plan, but that he has the divine omnipotent ability to work out that plan. God has determined a destiny for this world. Paul says God has a plan for the fullness of time or at just the right time. So the timing on this is intentional in every way. God has a plan when he is predetermined to unite all things in Christ. And by that he does not mean, uh, he's not speaking about a universal salvation in which no one is condemned. The expression all things is almost a technical phrase equivalent to the totality of creation. In fact, one translation renders it the universe. The words all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, do not mean that ultimately everybody is going to be saved because that interpretation absolutely contradicts many plain teachings elsewhere in the Bible. What Paul means is that one day God's entire universe will be restored and be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 19-21, uh, it says there, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mean, this is the all things of which Paul writes in our passage. But at the end of history, the entire created order, now that it's subjected to corruption because of the fall, will be restored to unity, harmony, order, and eternal glory under the Lordship of Christ. And so there's a cosmic dimension to God's plan of salvation. 
Now the universe is divided and groaning for redemption. Now God's people groan in this fallen world as, as we're looking for and awaiting the return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're groaning, longing for that, that, that full redemption. I mean, paradise was lost in Adam, but it's going to be restored in Christ. And John Stott summarized it this way. In the fullness of time, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church, will be unified under Christ, who is the supreme head of both. And Paul expressed a similar idea to the Philippians when he declared that there will, will be a day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At that time, Christ will gather the entire universe into unity. At the present time, the universe is anything but unified. Oh, it's, it's corrupted, it is divided, it is splintered, and it is fractured. Satan is now the ruler of this world, but in that day, he'll be cast out. He and his demon angels will be thrown into the pit during the millennial kingdom and then released for a short while at the end. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. The millennial kingdom will go out of existence. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And when every trace of evil has been disposed of, God will establish an incomparable unity in himself of all things that remain. And that is the inevitable goal of the universe. So you see, loved ones, the outcome of history is certain. And God has revealed it to us in advance. He is going to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, loved ones, we know the end. We don't know all the details, but we know the end. We know who wins, right? We know the end. And so that means we're able to live our lives in, in the present in light of that glorious triumph. And knowing the end of the story should help us uh, face the truth about the present world. And as Christians, we, we really are the, the greatest realists on earth. Because we understand what's going on. We understand why things are the way they are in the world, and we understand where things are going. We understand the world and all that is in it is passing away. But we also understand that we have a glorious hope and a glorious future. And as Christians, we live, or we should be living, with an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. And so realizing that the purpose of this world is to unite all things under Christ, that should shape and guide our approach to everything else in life and all that we do. And so knowing the mystery of God's will, we'll live for eternal things, not worldly things. I mean, we're glad to have money to buy things for this life, but we're just as excited to use our money for the things of God and for the sake of the gospel which will endure forever. 
We have earthly ambitions, goals, and, and things we want to achieve in this life, but we have a greater ambition for serving Christ, the glory of which will never end. I mean, we grieve when we experience trials and hardship, but as Christians, we see them in the light of God's purpose, knowing that He is training us for an inheritance in glory. We realize that however difficult the present may be, knowing the mystery of God's will gives us courage to trust in God and to do His will, to live for Him. And most important of all is that knowing God's purpose for history is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We want to know Him, right? We want to know Jesus. We want to know Him. Personally, intimately. And so let me ask you, do you know him? As I, as I read many different things, as I speak with pastors from all over, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious to those of us who have been in the ministry for decades, it's quite obvious that churches are full of people who profess to know him. But their lives say otherwise. There are many who profess to know him, but they'll say, well, I'm just not walking with him. That's nonsense. Utter nonsense. So let me ask you, do you know him? It's the most important thing in all of life. It's the only thing that will matter when we come to that day when we will enter into eternity. Not this goal or that, uh, that, that achievement. Nothing is going to matter in that day except do you know him? And so do you know him? He is the only Savior and Lord. Salvation is only found in him. And he said, didn't he, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. And it is only by grace through faith as we believe in him and surrender our lives to his rule and reign, that we come into relationship with him and experience all of the blessings of the riches of his grace. And knowing that, a person would be an absolute fool to bet their life on anything else. Suppose that you were out of the country, you know, on the backside of nowhere, and you had no access to news during the World Series. And since we're supposing things, <laughs> let's also suppose the San Francisco Giants were in the series, and they had defeated their arch enemies, the Dodgers. And I recorded that on my DVR. 
And then when you returned, I said to you, well, let's watch this series, but before we do, let's, let's make a little friendly wager. I'll give you 10 to 1 odds that the Giants will beat the Dodgers. And you being a diehard Dodger fan would be very tempted to take that bet. But you would be really, really foolish to put any money on the Dodgers in such a bet. Why? Because the outcome was certain. And I knew the outcome. And you didn't. Well, loved ones, the outcome of history is certain. Because God has revealed it to us in advance. He is going to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And again, knowing that outcome, you'd be a fool to bet your life on anything else. I mean, God wants us to submit our lives to him. He wants us to submit our lives to him as our Lord and Savior so that he might lavish upon us all of the riches of his grace. So that we then might spend our lives living for him and furthering the purposes of his kingdom. In light of God's sovereign plan and purpose which has been revealed to us, That is the only wise way to invest your life. It is absolutely foolish to do otherwise. If you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I want to encourage you this morning to come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Him. Ask Him to save you and to forgive your sins. And he will save. He is mighty to save. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.